0: You're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Kettle One Botanical.
1: One of my goals for the year is to spend more time with friends who I haven't seen nearly enough of. Preferably, these catch-ups happen over a good drink or two. For these occasions, I like to have our home bar stocked up with Kettle One Botanical. If you haven't tried it yet, it's vodka distilled with real botanicals. It has a pretty fresh taste and makes an excellent base for cocktails. If you're looking for recipe ideas, I highly suggest trying the Botanical Breeze or Lady Kombucha Cooler from Goop.com. The other reason we like Kettle One Botanical is because it's made with non-GMO grain and doesn't contain sugar or artificial sweeteners. They've got three varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. To shop for Kettleman Botanical, head to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com.
0: Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Coop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. Today we're kicking off a special Tuesday series on relationships that will run throughout February. First up, Elise is talking with philosopher and writer Alain de Bontemps, Alain's first book on love was published when he was 23, and he's gone on to write many poignant bestsellers, both fiction and nonfiction, including The Course of Love, How Proust Can Change Your Life, The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work, and How to Think More About Sex. He also started The School of Life in London, which puts its own spin on learning. Alain has a brilliant way of looking at the everyday and his perspective on relationships is so incredibly wise. Elise was thrilled to interview him on a trip to London. And I think you'll take a lot from their conversation too.
2: Look, I think the good news is that people are amazingly, wondrously complicated. So if ever you (laughs) feel that you've genuinely conquered, understood, been there, done that with a person, you haven't. Mm -hmm. And not because, you know, you're unimaginative, but because... People are like onions with a billion layers. There's always another layer. So if you feel you know your partner, you just haven't really got to know oh, them. Oh, wait. You shouldn't. <laughs> you, know, you, you shouldn't ever legitimately feel that you've exhausted someone. Often it's just about changing the angle of the lens, you know, mm-hmm. that you're not looking at them properly.
0: Now let's get to Elise and Ella.
1: Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. This it, The pleasure is all mine. I actually read On Love when I was a tween slash teen. I don't think I'd even ever been kissed. I certainly had ideas about love, which I had formed from movies. And it's funny, I read the book and I was like profoundly disappointed because not in the book, but in this idea of Not a lack of drama, but like, I think it's such a, and I know at the end you talk about like immature versus mature love. But in my mind, I was like, oh, I just want this to be sweeping. So let's start with this. Like, what is the difference between, and I mean, I was disappointed in respect to how it relates to my own life, just to be clear. But what is the difference in your mind between love and longing?
2: Okay, so longing is something you can do without somebody else. Mm. Um, You can do it from the safety of your own home with someone who doesn't know you and with whom there is absolutely no danger of reciprocated emotion. So it's painful, but it's safely painful, which is why it appeals very often to people who have fears around intimacy. And intimacy is scary. It's particularly scary when you're young because mm-hmm. it's a big thing to get together with somebody. So it's a natural... It's maybe the thing that people who are growing up... It's their first stop. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an easy, safe station to long, to pick someone who you maybe never meet or who's with somebody else or who's in another nation or something like this so that there's not too much danger they're going to turn around and go right so how's the relationship <laughs> um, because that's pretty scary love is about working with another person properly and that means listening to them fathoming them understanding them translating and it's hugely complicated what you want and mean into a language that they can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, it means properly being seen by another person mm-hmm. and letting another person see you. And maybe see is the wrong word because ultimately we normally have to do this with words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and words are horribly cumbersome. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic, they read each other's soul. They understand each other almost musically. Like mm-hmm. you play a song and that's my song and that's my heart. When you're actually really in a love relationship, you have to do that much trickier thing of of, of piling up words and saying, this is me in words. And that's very, very hard. It's mm-hmm. very hard to get words to be faithful to to feelings. So I would say that most of us are still students of love. and But, but longing is something we probably all know how to do Quite early
1: on. Right. And I think at one point in On Love specifically, you say something, or the protagonist writes, like, you just want to be seen and understood without speaking, right? It's language, but it, I think seeing is like the more. I don't know. There is that feeling, yeah. right, of being see, like the recognition.
2: Look, I mean, love starts with loneliness. If we weren't lonely, love wouldn't have much of an appeal to us. Mm. Um, love is born from a feeling of isolation and a desire for connection. You know, the opposite of of love is, is disconnection and loneliness. And, and with love, we hope to find our reality confirmed by the presence of another person. And that's why it makes it so deeply exciting that we are we feel like we're at the opposite end of alienation and separation and friendlessness you know with a lover they're on our side and they can see reality the way that we um, want it to be seen it's very rare it comes along only a few times in a lifetime and often we hallucinate that another person can understand us and they can't Um, and it's a little bit frightening when someone comes along and can love us, because we then feel so, well, we're both so delighted, but so scared that this thing will go away. So it's very normal to feel very fragile. Mm-hmm. When you found somebody you can love, you start to fear their loss immediately because they start to matter so much. I mean, in a lonely world, if somebody's drifted in and promises to understand your deepest inner reality, the chances of them running away, finding somebody else, etc., is, is very frightening. And so that's why lovers go through all these strange antics. That's why sometimes you love someone deeply, but suddenly get very angry with them and accuse them of all sorts of crimes that they haven't committed. Why are you doing this? Because you're scared. Mm-hmm. You want to exorcise that, that anxiety that they're going to let you down. Why might you turn away from the one you love? Why might you say, I'm going to read a book tonight. I'm just going to stay at my place. Please don't come around. Because you're terrified that you're going to dissolve mm-hmm. into this other person that you don't control it's that mixture of being so dependent on somebody that you don't control. Mm. Um, this is very frightening. And I think as soon as you talk about love, you also have to talk about fear, you know. And, right.
1: Yeah. And the fear of being seen, right? And this idea that we all sort of believe that we're unlovable.
2: That's right. That's right. And so, you know, that terrible moment where we're so keen to get the other person's love. And then maybe finally we get that love. And then we wonder... Have you understood me? Is this just an illusion? And then we might test them. And we might say, maybe you just love my body. Or maybe you just love my mind. Or maybe you just love my job. Or maybe you love my parents. Or maybe, maybe it's not me, this, this, this irreducible you know, essence that, that, that seems unlovable at mm-hmm. some level. But yes, I mean, while we're skating on that topic, why do we feel unlovable? We generally feel unlovable because we haven't been loved properly in childhood. And, and adult love sits on top of childhood love. And when we enter adolescence and our 20s, we are re-evoking and and treading in tracks that have been laid down in childhood. And if in childhood we had a narrative that those whom we loved didn't allow us to express our feelings or were too fragile to take our reality or had a terrible temper or died suddenly on us or went away, etc., this is going to make our entry into adult love very fraught, Mm. often in ways that we don't understand. And so I'm big on therapy. One of the good things about therapy is that it can allow you to see the stories that are in your head that Mm -hmm. you don't even know you're carrying. And therefore, the first time that you fall in love with somebody, you will be trying to apply often a pre-existing narrative about what will happen next. You know, I'll get close to this person and then dot, dot, dot. And people have got different stories. I mean, if you give an exercise to people literally you ask them to fill in the sentence you will fall in love with someone and then dot 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 and so you say okay don't think about it much just write whatever comes into your mind some people will go and then they'll leave me uh, or and then we'll live happily ever after or and then mm-hmm. we'll get married and have children or whatever it is but everyone's got a different answer and that's the inner script being surprised and coming out and mm-hmm. we apply these scripts very heavily
1: so how do you know the real thing both when you're experiencing it how do you determine what's passion, what's lust? Like, how do you, because I have this conversation, I feel like I have it less frequently the older I get, but definitely when I was younger, people were like, what's the difference between falling in love with someone, mm. being in love? Is it friendship? Is it with like a little bit of sex? Is it love? Like, what are there in your mind? Do you Is there like a love pie?
2: Mm. Um, I wish there was a neat love pie. Look, partly only time will tell. I think in the very early days, it's just impossible to separate it out. Time is going to be the agent that will resolve this sort of issue. So I think my advice is if you find yourself in that sort of heady early state and you're trying to find out, you know, is it sex? Is it lust? Is it love? Is it friendship? Is it an illusion, etc. Taking the necessary precautions, find out, wait and see. And I think that you know, it happens to the most healthy and sane and normal of us to end up in situations with people who don't deserve our love and mm-hmm. people who are illusions, essentially, and people who, you know. Um, and I think what marks out a healthy person from an emotionally unhealthy person is how quickly can you get out of a situation mm-hmm. when it starts to seem that actually maybe it was an illusion or maybe they don't seem to understand you or maybe, you know, seems a little unhealthy in some way or whatever. So it can happen to anyone to fall in love with all sorts of people in all sorts of situations, but how quickly do you you get out of it? I think that is the marker of of emotional Mm -hmm. um, health.
1: I think it's interesting. We have such a tendency to equate length, like with the success of a Mm. loving relationship too. Mm. And I think that some people have dramatic and real life-shaping love stories that aren't supposed to last forever.
2: Yes, I think that's extremely interesting. I mean, there's a there's a there's a general snobbery about length uh, in all areas of life. You know, mm-hmm. if a book is only thirty pages long, it can't be as significant as a book that's eight hundred pages long. We we apply these quite root sort of markers of of seriousness. If something is very cheap, we don't necessarily value it that much, you know, mm-hmm. to think I've had as much pleasure with an apple that cost a dollar as I've had, you know, with a holiday that costs whatever. We tend to value the way length, expense, prestige, etc. And definitely in our evaluation of love, most of the prestige goes to the long-term relationship. But picking up on the suggestion in your question, I totally agree that there can be You know, you can spend a weekend with somebody. You could have one conversation with somebody Mm -hmm. that opens up doors for you and changes your life. Absolutely. Longevity is no marker of anything, in pretty much in in any area. (laughs) Going on for a long time is, I'm going to cut myself short here, is not a great thing.
1: (laughs) And do you believe, I know you mentioned that people can have two or three potentially great loves in their life. Like, do you believe in the idea that of soulmates or other halves, or do you think that that's again, like we sort of cling to the ideas like that to justify how we feel?
2: Mm. Look, I think um, there's an immensely powerful cultural narrative in which we swim and live um, that tells us that there is one very special person, that person is a soulmate, and that person is destined for us in the long term, and they will be somebody probably with whom we should be raising a family, with whom we should be living pretty much all the time, and with whom we should be in an exclusive sexual relationship. And that is... Um, such a beautiful dream and it's such a powerful story and we all want it to be true. But I would say that anywhere between, you know, 70 and 90% of the population is left feeling abnormal in relation to that dream for one reason or another. It Mm. might be that their love doesn't last forever or that they don't want children or that they don't want sexual exclusivity or that it's only lasted a few months or whatever it is. But in one way or another, they don't feel normal in relation to that narrative. And I think... I think it's it's time to give these people a break. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't have a definition of normal love which leaves the majority of the population out feeling that there's something wrong with them. I, I mean, I know enough simply because through my work, I deal with the sort of things that people don't necessarily mention at dinner parties or in public. And I I know that the reality of people's lives is so different from um, from the official story. And the reality is... People who kind of love a bit here, but also love a bit there. And they can have sex here, but not there. They, you know, this was good for a while, but actually they're thinking about something else for the future, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And people feel wretched and they feel that they haven't got this thing called love because they're not loving according to the dominant cultural script of now. And I think that, look, if you zoom back and think, where are we in history? Broadly speaking, we've started to stretch the kind of love scripts that were allowed. Mm-hmm. It happened most obviously with things like gay rights. You know, suddenly it seemed possible for two women to be in love, or mm-hmm. two men to be in love. But you know, without wishing to demean or diminish the achievement that that took, and that was an amazing achievement. That's only the beginning. It's only mm-hmm. the beginning of recognizing how unusual, if you like, unusual in relation to our, our kind of norms that exist now. Um, love really is for many, many people. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can look forward to a future where we discover that there are many, many ways Mm -hmm. to love and that we've only just begun to sort out the love stories that we could be inhabiting.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I feel like this, I mean, this is not new too, but I notice among my female friends and my male friends who are straight that there is this new celebration too of, how those relationships tend to be the most enduring of all and the most love filled and that people are becoming increasingly good at exclaiming that Mm. and celebrating and sort of honoring those relationships as being some of the most, sometimes the primary relationship, really. Um, So in the course of what you've seen and experienced, like, I know this is not the right word, but like, what is normal? Like, what is the, the course of mature love Like, what does that look like for most people Mm. who feel like they're falling short but are Mm. really representing a majority?
2: Mm. Well, I mean, I think it has to start with a feeling that your own authentic, sincere experience is legitimate. And so many relationships go wrong because people don't dare to admit to their partner what it is they really feel. And it could be everything from, I don't want you to, you know, spend so much time doing this, or I don't want to, to, you know, be friends with X or Y. To the much bigger topics, like I don't want, you know, I don't feel that it's me anymore um, living the way we do in a sort of bigger sense. And it can take so much therapy work on yourself to to be in a position to voice who you are and what you want. Mm -hmm. Um, And many of us have come from backgrounds where saying who we are and what we want is not the first impulse at all. The first impulse is to adjust to the other person, please them, diminish our own personalities, disappear into expectations, etc. So a certain degree of self-assertion seems key, sounds odd, to love because you can only really properly love if you are already a kind of authentic, independent person. If you're a people pleaser, if you are somebody who just is waiting for the other person to you know, give the cue. How can you properly... How can you feel real in a relationship? How can you feel accepted for who you are if you haven't dared to say, you know, who you are? And so, again, it sounds odd, but there's a lot of politeness in Mm -hmm. relationships of the wrong sort. People are often painfully polite until it's too late. Mm -hmm. Um, And and not just about, you know, sexual orientation or taste, but uh, but in in all areas. So what they call communication and the skills of communication is to be able, without shame... Mm -hmm to tell another person what it is you're feeling and without humiliation. You know, one of the sort of basic things couples learn when they're trying to improve how they work together is don't feel ashamed of what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of bad behaviours arises when people feel ashamed and then they end up shouting or screaming their need at the other person or burying their need and turning away and, you know, signaling in a symptomatic way by banging doors or sulking or something what mm-hmm. they need. To be able to say, I'm upset now and I'd like you to recognize that. I'm kind of angry with you now and I, you know, I, I want that to be, a thing. not screaming, um, not saying nothing, but just being able to say in a calm voice, I'm angry now, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I feel disappointed or, or I'm jealous now, or something. It sounds simple, but it can take a lifetime for couples to achieve that sort of emotional literacy, to be able to, to tell each other things, let alone start revealing the odder sides of themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. I love you, but I want to sleep in a different room or I love you, but I want to move out and see, each other, see you only on a Tuesday or something, you know, whatever it is. We're not good at all this.
1: Yeah. No, it's so interesting. Or even just to create the space, you know, I I think Esther Prowl was, she talks about, I think, I don't want to misquote her, but I think it's sort of this idea of seeing your beloved through the eyes of the other mm. too and how important that sometimes is like the familiarity of like the day-to-day grind when sometimes when you see someone else like mm. beholding your beloved mm. you're like reminded
2: yes i mean there's you know there's a terrible dynamic in that when we love somebody what do we want to do we want to possess them mm-hmm. and so we want to possess them ever more and at, at the beginning there's this dynamic of ever greater Conquest so at first we don't know their name Then we know their name Then we want to know their childhood Then we want to hang out with them Then we want to go traveling with them and then we know, you know The shape of their index finger and everything we know everything about them and it's an exciting process of Discovery and as I say kind of colonization both people are colonizing each other and building a shared unit And then what well, you know, the ultimate thing that our society suggests is marriage and cohabitation So people then go get married and that's the exciting thing and then they move in together and, and and then it's ever more exciting And then comes a pause when you have, as it were, seemingly totally conquered each other. There are no more secrets. The other person is totally, you know, both people are in each other's pockets. There's nowhere else to go. And suddenly desire can die because it's like you've killed the individuality of somebody and you've killed the individuality that was responsible for at some level your excitement and passion that they were mm-hmm. an independent person who didn't rely on you who could live without you you wanted them to be with you because there was a possibility they might not be with you and that wasn't that isn't just a sort of tease it, it comes down to the fact that we we love people partly because they can bring us things we don't have in our own lives if somebody is so much belongs to our life. They can't seem to bring us anything anymore. We've killed their independence. And so there's this sort of weird paradox which Esther Perel talks very well about, which is the desire in relationships is to make people less independent. But the less independent they are, the more it's hard to desire them. And she does this very nice thing of asking people, when is the time that you most desired your partner? And recently, Mm -hmm. and this is long established couples, and they're all people will often tend to answer when they were at work, when they were with somebody else, when they were doing something impressive in another country or something, then suddenly their desirable element comes back to the fore and you remember they're not part of you. So there's something very unromantic about marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something about marriage that is dangerous to to love because it, it teaches us that we own another person and we don't ever own another person. And... You know, a whole cliche that, you know, why do couples make love after an argument? Well, because often the argument, if it's been big enough, has brought their relationship into question. They really thought, you know, we could break up. And the thought that they could break up has liberated them to see the other person as an independent person and therefore to desire them again.
1: Mm. There's something, too, about, you know, our desire. You talk about this in On Love as well. I mean, I think you talk about every facet of the relationship somehow in not that many paragraphs. But we want the thing until we have the thing, right? It's how we, kind of the human relationship to everything, right? Like you want you anticipate the vacation mm. with more joy than you actually experience mm. it. And then in retrospect, you loved it. And how? why are we so bad at being in the moment? And how can we be better at treasuring our romantic relationship?
2: Mm. Look, I think the good news is that people are, amazingly, wondrously complicated. So if ever you feel <laughs> that you've genuinely conquered, understood, been there, done that with a person, you haven't. Mm-hmm. And not because you know, you're know you unimaginative, but because people are like onions with a billion layers. There's always another layer. So if you feel you know your partner, you just haven't really got to know oh, them. Oh, wait. You shouldn't. You, know, <laughs> you, you shouldn't ever legitimately feel that you've exhausted someone often it's just about changing the angle of the lens, you know, mm-hmm. that you're not looking at them properly. You're, it's like living in a house. You've lived there a long time and then you think you know everything about it. And then suddenly somebody else comes in the house and goes, huh, you know, this has got a nice view or something. And suddenly you think, oh yeah, yeah, I've forgotten about the view. You know, we're constantly forgetting aspects of, of our partners because we're, we're lazy creatures of habit. And we, we only notice what seems immediately strikingly new, but there's always more to discover mm-hmm. if we have imagination.
0: It's true. Elise and Alain will be back after a quick break.
1: On Saturday, March 9th, I'll be heading back to New York City with GP and the rest of the team for InGoop Health. This is our fifth wellness summit. Each one is a little different, but they're all designed to explore what it means to optimize your well being. This is deeply individual work, but in general, it's the holistic picture that we're most interested in. Conversations that don't separate the mind from the body or the body from the mind, and of course, the conversations that move us to go further, to think about the soul. Ingoop Health has a little bit of all of that. If it sounds intense, it can be in moments, but mostly it's really exciting and very fun. There are talks and panels where some of the brightest thought leaders share new information, insights, and perspective. There are wellness experiences and adventures for almost every comfort level. So you can dip your toe in with a workshop on intuition and creativity, maybe get a vitamin B12 shot, or just head straight to the other side with a medium reading. And of course, there's a lot of good food, drinks, and a pretty great community. You'll meet some of my favorite people at Summit like intuitives Daganit Noor, Laura Day, and Laurelyn Jackson, psychiatrist Ellen Vora, and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed. If you want to make a weekend of InGoop Health, check out our Wellness Weekender Pass. It's a pretty baller weekend that includes a two-night stay at Park Hyatt, New York. There's a cocktail party and a private book signing with Gwyneth, who will be giving out copies of her new cookbook, The Clean Plate. There's also a VIP workout class and brunch. And the Summit team always comes through with some surprise perks that they won't even tell me about. The Wellness weekend or Pass kicks off on Friday, March 8th, and Summit is the next day. We'd love to see you there. To get tickets, head to goop.com slash ingoophealth. One of the perks of working at Goop is getting to try the latest recipes that come out of the test kitchen. Our food editors, Caitlin and Anna, are probably the most well-liked people in our office. You might have heard them on the podcast a little while back talking to GP about her new cookbook, The Clean Plate. They're both great. Primarily, Caitlin and Anna come up with new recipes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or they're cleaning up some version of a favorite snack. But occasionally, they get into drinks, and that's when you really want to be around the test kitchen for sampling. Caitlin and Anna have gotten pretty prolific with their cocktails using Kettle One Botanical. They did a riff on the classic sea breeze using hibiscus tea, lime juice, and Kettle One Botanical grapefruit and rose. That one might be my favorite. If you wanna test it out yourself, check out their recipe on goop.com. And if you're coming to our summit in Goop Health this March in New York City, we'll be serving up Kettle One Botanical there. Depending on the kind of cocktail you're in the mood for, Kettle One Botanical comes in a couple of other flavors. There's also cucumber and mint and peach and orange blossom. You can shop Kettle Botanical online at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com.
0: Back to Elise and Alain de Botton.
1: So I'm very grateful I'm married and I, that I met my husband in, at the very tail end of my 20s which felt like a coup, Mm because as you know, when you're a woman and you're nearing 30 and you're unmarried, people become very worried. Um, So, but I I was, so I had, one, I feel like I dated every single person in New York City, but also I had had several relationships, some far more important to me than others, but I'd sort of like worked out the drama, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm and like stated that desire because I think when I was young particularly in reading like I read prolifically because I grew up in the country and my parents didn't have cable tv which was very smart you know it was like my whole life was like primarily fantasy right about this these experiences so I feel like I did that Mm. and how important and I don't know if I'm like unique and feeling grateful that I have a Pretty un, like, not very dramatic relationship with my husband, and I celebrate that every day. A lack of
2: drama is good. A
1: lack of drama is good. But like, good. in your experience of dealing with this subject for decades, is that good, or are some people like do they crave that? Like, do, are they never satisfied without without um, the drama, without the like breakup and reconciliation?
2: Yeah, I think that the desire, what we what you're calling the desire for drama, if you if you strip it down, is often linked in with a problem with certain aspects of settled relationships. Maybe you can't keep a connection alive mm-hmm. with someone when they're there all the time. Maybe maybe the relationship goes dead if somebody says mm-hmm. that they love you and you sort of love them, but kind of it doesn't have any more spark, etc. I think it's a real sign of, of emotional health to be able to live without drama.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, to be a so-called boring person
1: yeah.
2: um, is the number one sign of health oh. and and we oh, so wait. celebrate Drama and you know our culture is so romantic in celebrating drama that, that it misses that boring is health and and incidentally the same applies in careers. Mm-hmm. I mean the person who can take you know an unshowy job and earn a sort of decent amount of money and doesn't doesn't crave public applause etc. Those are the healthy ones. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know the meteorites who who soar up or the rockets who soar up in the sky and you know need billions etc. They're all disturbed. It's always disturbance. So it's very good that you and your husband have have a, a lack of a lack of drama. <laughs> But you should feel sorry for everybody else who doesn't or many, many people who don't. Because most people do need drama. I don't know about your childhood or past, but I would guess that maybe you had a slightly non-dramatic past or, or, you know, a a steady love. Maybe you enjoyed a steady love in childhood, maybe. Um, So that seems normal. If one's had quite a drama-filled childhood, drama feels normal. Um, Peace does not feel normal. Peace feels alarming. It feels like the quiet moments in a horror film just before that tinkly music yeah it starts and, and the axe murder is going to come so in a way you need activity because that's the only thing that feels safe you need mm. you need hazard in order to feel safe it sounds odd and i think many of us are, are in that kind of position
1: and you think people can sort of unwind that through therapy or just like being cognizant of what it is that's so uncomfortable
2: yes absolutely i mean to be able even to say to your partner, things are so calm and good here. There's a side of me that wants to smash it all up. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. That's a really interesting thing that should be taken very seriously. You know, I'm unnerved by our happy little life. Yeah. Like, okay, that's let's take that on board. Let, let's look at that. And um, sure, it's just one more quirk of the human spirit.
1: So let's go in a darker direction, mm-hmm. which is sort of the end of love. And how do you... When is it too late like, when have you sort of let your love decay to the point mm-hmm. that it can't be resuscitated? Mm-hmm. And then I the sort of follow-on to that is, like, what what is the loving thing to do in that situation? Like, mm-hmm. I, I certainly have friends who don't know how to exit gracefully. Mm-hmm. And so there's... And I think it seems like affairs and whatnot are, like, the sabotaging... Sorry, the sabotaging way mm-hmm. to, like, take things past the point. Mm-hmm. Like, why is it so hard to to in a mature way say maybe this is the end of our the line mm. why do you need the assurance of mm. destruction
2: mm. well look i mean just get the first part of your question first i mean i think that what tends to really help relationships is the possibility to be ambivalent in them. In other words, to go, I love you and I hate you. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in you and I'm bored. (laughs) I'm loyal to you and I want to have an affair. The more that ambivalent feelings can be brought onto the surface, the safer the relationship is. Interesting. Um, And I think that... You know, if you think about what happens when relationships decline and ossify, it's often because resentments and ambivalent feelings and weird feelings have not been brought out. There hasn't been, you know, what they call relationship hygiene. You haven't been able to say enough of the dark side, and then it's just built up and built up until you can't bear them anymore. Whereas right. if every day you can say, you know, you really annoyed me at lunchtime, and you know, at tea time I saw somebody in the street, and I really wanted to be with them, and I kind of wanted to leave you and the children and get run off with them, and and by dinner time uh, I loved you again, but I felt you didn't love me or whatever. It sounds a little dramatic, but much more, than, much better than that. Than hi hun, and then you know, twenty years later, blow up. Right. So I think couples need constantly to bring that ambivalent material to the table and share it and be and. And be grown up about it and, and, and be tolerant because often what happens is like, oh, what, you had, a, you had a, an unfaithful feeling? That's terrible. I'm going to censor you. Because, you know, it's like the more couples mm. can allow each other to, to, to look at each other's ambivalent feelings and tolerate them, the safer it is. I mean, how much does one feel loyalty and love to somebody who is able to share their adulterous thoughts? wow, that's lovely. It's like, it's like you know, it's like I, I really liked, you know, the waiter and, and, but I'm telling you and you're listening to me and you haven't run away. Oh, you're a person I can love because my reality is open to you. You don't, you don't censor me. You don't, you know, you're not horrified by me. That's a very loving thing to do. But couples don't do that. They They think that there is a script of what it means to be a good person in a couple and that they follow that script so faithfully that they asphyxiate themselves Mm. in in, in the relationship and then it's too late and then the only way, you know, what is an affair? An affair can be many things but often one one of the things that an affair is is a reflection of an emotional disconnection with a primary partner. It's like you are totally lonely. You can't say to your partner because your partner doesn't seem to understand and so the only thing to do seems to be to go off with somebody else. It's not the most mature thing but it's obviously an understandable thing. When an affair is discovered, it's hugely important not simply to go You are a horny, awful, lustful person, damnation to you. That's the first impulse. The first thing that one must try to do, and all, well, decent uh, relationship therapists will will say this, is to try and find out what the affair meant Mm -hmm. Um, and to try and keep the level of understandable anger such that there is still dialogue possible and that most often an affair is a message directed at the person who's betrayed, a message that hasn't found any other way of expressing itself. And so the key thing is to try and decode that and see, you know, where the couple can be. But too often people just say, oh, they had an affair, I ran away. You know, Mm -hmm. I I wasn't going to stick around with somebody who has affairs. You know, it's just, you want to go, hang on, hang on. It's a message. Let's try and find out what that message was.
1: Mm -hmm. And how often, and I guess this is incredibly personal and specific to different people, but like how does an affair, is that primarily talking about the relationship? Is that, like how, personal is it i guess it just i guess it completely depends
2: Mm. i think most affairs are a kind of mirror in some way to the main relationship and its flaws Mm -hmm. so we'll seek in an affair things that are not possible within the relationship we'll try and address messages to our main partner via our choice Mm -hmm. of of other partners i mean it's a Look, in many ways, it's a cry for help. It's like mm-hmm. I didn't know, I don't know what else to do. And most of the time, the discovery of an affair just is the end of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it should ideally be a next stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, many of us lack, all of us to some extent, but certainly many of us to, to extreme extent lack the maturity required to really accept how complicated we are and how complicated the other person will be, and therefore to be generous and patient and mm-hmm. sympathetic enough, even for some pretty weird stuff. Yeah. you know. But there are couples that are amazing, that, that are really, I don't know, that just go the extra mile to go, deep down we love each other. And even though this is such a weird thing, or even though we're in such, such trouble in many ways, we're going to keep at it.
1: Yeah. It's interesting too, when you think about something like an affair, because it is so triggering to so many people. And I feel like, in watching friends who have experienced that, like the judgment mm-hmm. that's inherent and sort of heaped on either party or both really. And I think at least in the U S it seems people are unforgiving yeah. of a couple that might, or like a woman who might choose to persevere in the relationship despite infidelity yeah. or or vice versa. Like there's such a, a vengeful judge. It's, it's really no one's business, obviously. Yeah. But it's, it's part of the culture, I think.
2: It, it is very striking. I mean, at the School of Life, we run a YouTube channel and every now and then we've put films up about affairs and, and you know, the third person in the relationship, etc. And the comments below those films mm-hmm. has shocked all of us here by its vitriol. And, and the line seems to be anyone who so-called cheats well, deserves to go to hell. Right. Um, and that's the end of that. And they end of story. And, you know, this is why someone like Esther Perel is, is really a countercultural figure in the United States and what she's saying, because her essential message is hang on. There's a lot inside an affair. Let's unpack it. There are affairs and affairs. Mm-hmm. They happen for all sorts of reasons. Let's not be so judgmental. I hope that people will outgrow those attitudes. They're really not helpful, even if a couple eventually does split up, you know. Very few people ever enter a relationship wanting to harm the other person. Mm -hmm. Very few people begin an affair with a conscious desire to humiliate and hurt. That's not why these things happen. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, people act the way they do because they're in pain, because they have needs that they don't know how to interpret and take care of. Mm -hmm. And the only natural response should be, you know, charity and Uh, imagination for all parties Mm -hmm. concerned I mean that's the only fair response
1: yeah it's interesting too I think that some of it and I'm just thinking about my own like how hurt I would be and and all of that too where I feel like that's often the reaction is that if I am understanding about someone's infidelity then I'm somehow giving I mean, I really cannot imagine my husband having an affair, but that I'm somehow giving him permission, which I think is not... Yes, I,
2: I see what you mean. Yes, I yeah. think there is a great fear. If, if I'm going to be imaginative and sympathetic towards affairs, I'm going to end up with one on my hands and then I'm not going to be able to complain about it, etc., right. cetera, etc. Cetera. And
1: that no one could control themselves. Right. Which I don't think is true. Right,
2: right. No, I mean, again, there's no necessary link between being ready to look in a complex way at affairs and having lots of affairs. Look, I think ultimately we've given ourselves so few scripts for how things can be. You know, we, we, we literally expect that the only normal way is to get married at, you know, 32 and then spend till eighty-five happily together with one person while raising two point two kids. It just won't do. It mm-hmm. just it leaves too many victims behind. We can't all fit that script. And nor can we expect that those who can't fit that script will have to be described in the most awful and vicious terms. Yeah. I mean, isn't, we're not in the Middle Ages. Like, if we've learned anything, it's that we have to, yeah, as I say, be more imaginative.
1: So for those people, and this, and then I'll, I'll let you get back to your important work. For those people who are in a loving relationship, how can you be good to your love? Like, how can you tend to it? How can you take Mm. care of it?
2: I think to regularly have conversations with your partner in which, for example, you discuss any areas of resentment because resentments build up. Resentments are very, very dangerous in Mm. in love. And a resentment is really a, a kind of a wound that the other person has inflicted, often without knowing it, that you haven't been able to find words for, but that is, you know, bothering you, bugging you inside. The more you can say... Um, the more you can both hear each other say, you know, I resent you, you know, I'm feeling a little resentful because dot, dot, dot. And if you catch it early enough, you know, because we always go and see your mother or because I'm always the one to clean up the kitchen in the evening or because it seems like you never asked me about what I'm reading or because, you know, if you can catch it at that level, that's fantastic. And it always leads, always leads to an increase in affection. So to be able to to cut down on, on resentment. The other thing is to be able to apologize. If both of you are going to apologize, you know. It's true. I've been a bit distracted. I and I apologize for that. Or I've been, you know, my thoughts have been elsewhere. Or I, I did, I was quite cynical about your expression. Or whatever. The more you can kind of apologize. So, cleaning up the kind of resentments and and then cleaning up the apology. Also, the other, you know, great thing is just to remind you, remind each other of what you appreciate in each other. You know, as I've been thinking about it, you know. I, you know, I love the way that, you know, you're so confident when you talk to so-and-so, or I, I love the way, you know, you look very endearing when you're, you know, doing this or whatever it is, just little moments of appreciation and and then also curiosity. Um, so tell me, like, you know, how do you see your you know, ambitions for the future or how do you see yourself growing old or how what do you want your relationship with your parents to be like next year or, you know? Those kinds of curiosity, they, they help to bind people. We do this naturally when we're on an early date. We do this naturally in the early days, and then we forget. But there are these kind of steps you can do to ensure that the relationship sticks together. And also, the other thing is, you know, whether you're having sex or not having sex, holding your partner, mm-hmm. being close, very important. Holding hands a bit, kissing each other, looking each other in the eye. All these things that we forget to do, but they are, you know, these little moments of tenderness. They are the... um you know, the the insurance policy for for all the kind of big storms that may Mm. hit a couple at any time.
0: Thanks for listening to Elise's conversation with the very smart Alain de Botton. To learn more about his work, head to alaindebotton.com. Thanks again for tuning into the Goop podcast. We'll be back on Thursday and next week on Tuesday and Thursday again. In the meantime, I hope you get a chance to rate, review, and share the podcast with a friend. To keep up with new episodes, hit subscribe. And for more info, check out coop.com slash the podcast.